From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Film Week. Welcome, I'm Larry Mantle. On this week's program, our critics review the action film Extraction. It's streaming on Netflix and stars Chris Hemsworth. The comedic drama Bad Education is an HBO original that premieres Saturday night. And we'll hear about the documentary Circus of Books, which details the history of two Los Angeles-area bookstores which served the gay community back through the AIDS era and beyond. You're listening to music from Midnight Cowboy, the 1969 Oscar winner for Best Film, and the music of Toot Steelman. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. Preppy wants everyone to be prepared for any situation. By bringing design to the forefront of their emergency kits, they are making earthquake prep less daunting and maybe even a little fun. Made in California, Preppy's attractive canvas and leather bags are designed to be displayed right in your living room or office. If an emergency strikes, your most essential supplies are at arm's length, not stashed somewhere deep in your closet. Though the Preppy line is quite handsome on the outside, the contents they include are incredibly comprehensive, helping you face real emergency situations with confidence. Go to Preppy.co, that's P-R-E-P-P-I dot C-O slash Filmweek for more information. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us as Film Week has evolved to look at all forms of at-home entertainment from streaming services, cable channels, what's available on Blu-ray, and so much more. Very pleased to be joined this week by critics Angie Han, who's film critic and deputy entertainment editor at Mashable, Wade Major, film critic with Synagogues.com, and Christy Lemire, film critic for RogerEbert.com, and she also co-hosts Breakfast All Day, the podcast. We begin with the Netflix streaming film, uh, the action movie Extraction, starring Chris Hemsworth. Sam Hargrave makes his feature directorial debut, the screenplay written by Joe Russo. Wade, what do you think of Extraction? As preposterous as it is, it's just one of those dumb action films that we all love. It's got a little bit of John Wick in its DNA. Uh, Chad Stahelski, who directed the John Wick films, used to be a stuntman and a stunt coordinator and stepped up to do these, these shoot-em-ups. And it's kind of the same thing that's happening here with Sam Hargrave. He used to be a stunt coordinator on a lot of stuff, from Atomic Blonde to the uh, the last Avengers film. He's worked with the Russo brothers, who created this story in a in a, uh, a graphic novel uh, form. And uh, basically, it's Chris Hemsworth blowing up pretty much all of Bangladesh to extract the son of an Indian drug lord from the Bangladeshi drug lord who has kidnapped him. It's a, it's a straightforward commando movie, maybe a little bit like uh, Schwarzenegger's original commando. And uh, if you just like nonstop action and, and body count, boy, it really delivers. Well, this is a kind of movie I might think, Wade, would benefit from the big screen. Did you feel um, at all the scope diminished by watching it at home? I actually, no, but I have a pretty substantial home theater, and uh, I, the, the explosions on my subwoofer were so intense <laughs> that I actually missed the earthquake while I was watching this. So, uh, if you have a good home system, you're not going to miss anything. All right, we're talking about the action film extraction. Christy, what do you think? So I actually 
actually wish I had seen it in a theater. I watched it on my television, which clearly is not nearly as high tech as Wade's. Um, but there is one big section in the middle. There's one long chase that is structured to look like one long single take. And it is just exquisitely staged and structured. And yeah, if you're looking, you know where the cuts are. And the, the camera is like, it begins inside the car in this chase and then goes back out the back window and then back around to the side window. And then they get out because they crash and they go inside of a, a, you know, narrow, rickety old apartment complex up the stairs, down the hallways, into different buildings. And it's so thrilling. And you're like, oh, my God, they're, they're still going here. For stuff like that, I don't think this is a totally dumb shoot-em-up. There's a lot of style and a lot of craft on display and a lot of ambition for a first-time filmmaker. And it's an opportunity for Chris Hemsworth to show some actual dramatic range. Like, he's got a backstory and he gets to cry and I actually bought it. All right. Extraction, Angie, what'd you think? I'm going to depart with the others a little bit on this. I didn't hate it, but I also just kind of felt like I have seen this movie a hundred times before. So if you're in the mood for this kind of movie, then I can see it completely hitting the spot. But if you're looking for something new, then this isn't it, or at least it didn't feel like it was to me. Um, I concur with everyone else that the action is pretty good, but I guess for me that just wasn't quite enough to move it to help me get over the fact that I just didn't find any of the characters or the storyline to be very interesting. Like it, it it just all felt very familiar to me. That said, since you brought up whether this would have played better in theaters, now I do wonder, would I have liked this more in theaters where I could, where it would have been a more immersive experience versus watching it in my living room surrounded by, you know, my cat and all sorts of distractions. So maybe. Yeah. It's one of the things I've really wondered about with at-home viewing, because typically the kinds of films that have gone to the streaming services are more intimate. Now we're starting to see some of these, uh, you know, blow them up action kind of typical big screen films. The question is, you know, how well those will play in a home environment. We're talking about Extraction, starring Chris Hemsworth, Sam Hargrave directing, Joe Russo wrote it. It's rated R and streaming on Netflix. The comedic drama Bad Education stars Hugh Jackman and Allison Janney. Corey Findlay directs, Mike Makowski is the uh, screenwriter here. Uh, Angie, certainly the two stars are highly appealing. Yes, and I thought they were both very good. So, uh, Bad Education is a drama about a real-life embezzlement scandal that occurred in Roslyn, in the Roslyn, New York school district, I think sometime in the mid-2000s. Um, so Hugh Jackman plays the district superintendent, I believe, and Allison Jenny is his uh, right-hand woman. And they have slowly been stealing all sorts of money from the school district for years, and it's been going really well so far because the school district is doing really well. It's thriving. The kids are getting great education. All the parents love them. But then eventually things start to fall apart. I really like this one a lot. I thought that it. I thought it was really smart. I thought that it kind of managed to avoid sensationalizing the story or oversimplifying the characters in a way that I found to be really engaging. It, I, I can see a version of this that just kind of plays up the drama for laughs or goes completely ridiculous or completely villainizes these characters. But I liked being able to see who, how, sorry, I liked being able to follow how they got to this place. I've liked Ray Romano when I've seen him in dramatic roles. I don't know if that's what he plays here, but um, he's in the cast. How is he in, in Bad Education? 
he's pretty good, but I'd say it's a smaller role. Hugh Jackman is the star here, and he I think it's one of his best performances ever. And then, of wow. course, Alice and Janney is never not fun. Wow, because I'm thinking of Hugh Jackman in, in Logan and, you know, among other performances. Christy, what do you think of Bad Education? It's really good, and this takes place in 2004, so long before this recent college admissions scandal, you know, that shined a light on just how desperate parents are to make their kids succeed. You had this going on where, you know, parents cared about being in this esteemed school district. They were ranked fourth in the nation. They were spending $8 million on some flashy cosmetic sky bridge just to exude this aura of success, and this is a a place where that matters. It's just like this desperate desire to get your kid into the right Ivy League school. So we see that on display here. Um, what I really love about Hugh Jackman's performance is that he has reached an age where he's not trying to get us to like him anymore. You know, for so long, there's been that razzle-dazzle and that twinkle in his eye, and he's just charming. And his character is charming here, too. But from the very first minute that you see him, you recognize sort of a sinister nature beneath the slickness. And as he gets older, he seems more willing to find those more complicated, dramatic characters. Blair, you mentioned Logan, which he's so great in, and it's a fantastic film, you know, playing that role, but he's still a hero at his core, as tormented as he is. This guy is not a hero. This guy is doing what he must to survive and still putting on the face of, of success and power. Bad Education, uh, the comedic drama we're talking about. Wade, uh, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, it, it, what I what I like about it is that it feels very authentic, and that's obviously because uh, writer Mike Mikowski was a student at that high school when all of this happened. So there is they, there is a very journalistic man on the ground behind enemy lines feeling to having experienced a, um, a a scandal which is basically a pyramid scheme using public money using education money. Um, so it, it feels very authentic. The the my my misgivings about it are kind of minor and maybe a, a little bit picky, but I, I feel like the the the, the price of uh, of giving us well-rounded characters is that it too often tries to overly humanize them and maybe give them uh, a, a moral escape from their predicament, uh, tries to make us like them maybe a little too much or justify their actions a little bit too much. It's kind of a minor quibble, but I, I did feel like they were bending over backward to give everyone uh, a, an exit uh, clause. And um, if it had let, if it had been content to let everyone be really as corrupt and dislikable uh, as they probably were, I think I would have liked it more. Bad Education. It's an HBO original. The film is unrated, and it stars Hugh Jackman and Allison Janney. It makes its debut Saturday night on HBO. The documentary Circus of Books tells the story of the two bookstores in West Hollywood and Silver Lake, uh, owned and operated by Karen and. And Barry Mason. The stores uh, were real pillars of the LGBTQ community in Los Angeles. And the documentary is directed by the daughter of the Masons, Rachel Mason, who'll be with us later this hour on Film Week. Uh, Christy, please start us on the doc, Circus of Books. Well, this is a great little L.A. story. It's a great slice of life into a very specific community, a very specific neighborhood, a very specific corner of West Hollywood. The original Circus of Books was at Santa Monica Boulevard and La Jolla, and the couple that owned it 
couldn't be sweeter or more unassuming or, you know, just gentle, kind souls and not necessarily the kind of people that you would expect would be selling really hardcore gay porn. Um, but they looked at it as a business and they looked at what they were doing as a service to the community. And a lot of the folks that they hired, this is, you know, when there were still videotapes and there were still magazines, you still had to go to a place to get these things. A lot of folks they hired, you know, were gay and maybe felt isolated or lost. And this was a home for them. And it was a warm place of acceptance for them. And it's about the founding of the store and the evolution of the store um, through the perspective of their daughters, filmmaker Rachel Mason, who, you know, explains that for a long time, she and her brothers didn't really know what their parents did. Like they knew they had a bookstore, but they didn't really know what that meant exactly. Um, and it's it's a really specific snapshot of, of a specific L.A. place and time. But it's also got this window into a larger trend, the way that over the last decade or so, um, the Internet has really changed the way people consume entertainment, the way they communicate with each other. And so if you don't need to go to a bookstore like this and go to the back room and find another gentleman who has your same proclivities, you can find that with the, you know, swiping right and uh, right on your phone. And so bookstores like this, businesses like this have, have dried up as a result. And it's, it's very sad, you know, it, the, the internet makes it all convenient, but it also uh, makes it so you don't have as many places to physically meet people and connect on a deeper level. We're talking about the documentary Circus of Books and um, just tacking on to what Christy was saying. There's there's kind of a funny scene in the film where Rachel, the filmmaker, um, explains how she found out about the type of bookstore that her parents operated. Wait, what do you think of the doc Circus of Books? I think it's absolutely excellent. And and I want people to really, I, I'm afraid that if it's portrayed as a documentary about a gay porn establishment that it's going to miss, uh, that an audience that really should see this will miss it. Because it's about so much more than that. It's really a documentary about family. This is a daughter making a documentary about her family, and her very unusual family, but it's also an American success story. But it's also the story of the, the, what happens to, like Christy said, what happens to businesses uh, that thrived pre-internet when the internet comes and kind of stomps on them. It reminded me in many respects of, of a film we reviewed five years ago on Film Week, famous Nathan, about the the story of the, of the famous the handworker family and the uh, the, hot, the famous hot dog brand, uh, which is also a family documentary about a family success story and what, how that affects the family and um, what you have to do when when you want to support your kids and put your kids through college and reach out to other people and and uh, the lengths that you will go to. The most interesting thing for me is how many people really love this wonderful, sweet otherwise very conservative Jewish couple, the mother of whom goes to synagogue every week, but yet they run this gay porn establishment, and the people who worked there, who were so grateful for them that they weren't judgmental, that they were embracing, that there was there were two families really going on, the family of the people who worked for them, and then their own natural family. Well, and there's such opposites, personality-wise. One of the employees talking about uh, that if Barry walked into the store, you're reading a magazine, you say, hi, Barry, wouldn't, wouldn't bother putting it away. If Karen walked in, you definitely put that magazine right away and got got back to work. Angie, what do you think of Circus of Books? I liked it quite a bit, and I really liked the family aspect of it. I do think that the fact that it's directed by the daughter of the owners of the store gives it a really interesting layer. You see through her, ha- um, 
sorry, you see through her kind of the division between the couple's work life and their personal life. You see, you come to see how, you come to see through her telling the story how she came to see her parents as people, because I think that's something that all of us have to go through at some point, the realization that, oh my goodness, my parents are also human beings. They're also really complicated. They had this whole past before I knew them and they are doing all sorts of things that I don't really understand. Uh, toward the, I think in the second half of the movie, there is this growing subplot about how the parents kind of were accepting of their own kids or not as they were growing up. And all right, how- we'll continue Circus of Books, the documentary which was uh, directed by Rachel Mason. We'll talk with her later on on Film Week, the movie that she made about her parents. The film is streaming on Netflix and unrated. Back in a minute on Film Week. So good to have you with us on Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle, and movie theaters, of course, are still closed. But there is a lot of entertainment on TV and laptops at home. That's what we're talking about. What's available on streaming services, cable channels uh, available for download, and even on Blu-ray disc. I'm joined this week by critics Christy Lemire of RogerEbert.com and the co-host of the podcast Breakfast All Day, Wade Major, film critic at Synagogues.com, and Angie Hahn, who's deputy entertainment uh, editor and film critic at Mashable. Our next film up is a Russian comedic drama titled Why Don't You Just Die? Uh, It's written and directed by... Kirill uh, Sokolov, uh, the film is unrated. Angie, what'd you think of Why Don't You Just Die? I really enjoyed this one a lot, and I didn't know anything about it going in, so it was a very pleasant surprise for me. So it opens with a young man showing up at his girlfriend's father's house in order to kill him. But then as the movie goes on, you find out why this is happening. You find out that there is a lo- the situation is much more complicated than it looks at first. And I feel like it's a movie where you know right you where you know pretty quickly if it's going to be for you or not. I liked it right away. I, it's very violent in a very stylish way and very bleak in what I think is a very funny way. Uh, I think I've, I've heard other people compare it to like Tarantino or Guy Ritchie, and that makes perfect sense to me. All right. Uh, why don't you just die as the film? What do you think of it, Christy? It's completely a Russian Guy Ritchie movie. That's exactly what it is. Um, in, in that there is like an otherworldly kind of specificity to this place and the apartment where it all takes place and the language and just the matter of fact nature in which they destroy each other. It's simultaneously so bloody. It's so gory, but there's almost like a simplicity to it. Right. And a, and a playfulness with structure. And so there are scenes where, you have to look at it through splayed fingers. It's so bloody and so gory and so gnarly. And yet you're also laughing at the same time because it's just insane and over the top. So you have all these characters and then they take these detours into the, each of their backstories as to how they ended up in that apartment and how they're all tied together by this money. And yeah, it's a lot of fun, but definitely not for the squeamish. All right. And apparently it's feature writing and directorial debut for Sokolov. Uh, wait, what'd you think? 
Yeah, it's it's uh, it's definitely a Russian Guy Ritchie movie, there's no doubt about it. And it, uh, it it's a little bit too tricked up in its style for my taste, but so is Guy Ritchie usually. Uh, what wins me over here is more more than the style and the violence and the indulgence of it. Really, are some of the performances. Uh, the actor who plays the father, Vitaly Chayev, is just such a delight because he's kind of a stereotypical Russian uh, tough guy. He plays it, you know, he's a, he's a dad, but he's also a detective. You can never quite read him. He seems to be suspicious of everyone. He sort of has malice toward everyone as well, including his wife and his daughter. Um, he has, doesn't seem to have a conscience, but you can never really quite tell what he's thinking or what he's going to do. He's incredibly unpredictable. And there's a certain spontaneous joy in watching him just do that over and over and over. Why Don't You Just Die is unrated. It's available on multiple video on-demand platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Prime Video, and Google Play. The documentary Beastie Boys Story is, just as the title describes, Spike Jones, the director, Christy. I love this movie so much. This is my favorite movie of the week. A lot of it has to do with the fact that I love the Beastie Boys since high school, so this just took me back. This is a big nostalgia trip for me. But this is Mike D and Ad Rock, Mike Diamond and Adam Horowitz just on stage at the King's Theater in Brooklyn telling stories about how the band got started. And Spike Jones, who has directed some of their videos, including very famously the video for Sabotage, directs this. And there's a very meta nature to the way that they interact with him off in the wings in the darkness someplace. Um, Adam Yauch is no longer with us. And that is, you know, part of why they want to tell this story now. They want to tell the story of how they all got together and how this third person in their group who is so, so vital to their sound and their ethos is no longer there. He died in 2012. And uh, it's just so, it's hilarious. It's so funny. Them telling stories of how they got together, how they created their sound, working with Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons, and how they went their own ways and then came back together. They always came back together no matter what. And um, it's just a joy. If you love the Beastie Boys, you will have a giant smile on your face the whole time. But also there's a really interesting introspection that occurs now that these are guys in their early 50s about some of the lyrics from their earlier songs from License to Ill, like Girls, and just the, the misogyny of their party frat boy bro persona back then. And they're apologetic for it, and they're aware of it, and they want to make that right. And uh, you, you'll get choked up toward the end, too. Stay through the credits. If I have one important thing to tell you, stay through the credits. And, you love it. And since you're watching it at home, where else are you going to go? Beastie Boys Story, the musical uh, documentary. Angie, what do you think? Well, Chrissy mentioned that she is a big fan of the Beastie Boys, so she loved this movie. And I do feel like that's the key here. I am someone who is obviously aware of the Beastie Boys and like some of their songs, but I would not describe myself as someone who is particularly a big fan of theirs. So I came at this with someone who is more or less neutral on them. And to me, it felt like I was missing something. It felt like I wish I loved this band more so that I could appreciate more what they're doing here. Um, because I wasn't such a big fan, I, th I thought it was just okay. Uh, it felt to me like a TED talk or like a slideshow presentation version of their biography. That said, it's they're very likable people. They're very appealing, you know, no surprise there. They're it's it's very sweet at times and I do I did, I did appreciate that 
I feel like the kind of rise to fame and then the fall from grace and then learning how to mature, like that's a very familiar arc that we see with a lot of these kinds of stories about musicians or just people who hit it really big. And it was really nice and interesting to see it recounted by people who have gone through all that and then come out the other side with a new perspective on their own younger selves. Mostly, though, I just walked away feeling like, you know, these seem like really nice people, and I'm I'm happy they're happy. Beastie Boys Story is the documentary. It's available to Apple TV Plus subscribers, Spike Jones, the director, and it's unrated. The historical action film Robert the Bruce is directed by Richard Gray, and it's co-written by the star of the film, Angus McFadden. Angie, what do you think of Robert the Bruce? Uh, I am I'm mixed on this one. I liked it and I thought I didn't think it completely worked, but I appreciated what it was trying to do. So it's set in 14th century Scotland where and it follows Robert the Bruce after a series of defeats where he finds refuge with a family of peasants kind of randomly that he meets in the countryside. Uh, and, you know, it, Robert the Bruce in case people are not super well-versed on Scottish history, he's the uh, same guy that Chris Pine played in Outlaw King. He was actually also played by the same actor in Braveheart uh, many years ago. So the movie starts out kind of slow, and I at first I was really not into it, but then I started to see what it was doing, and I found it to be interesting. It, it takes an unexpected angle that I think is different from a lot of medieval war epics we've seen, like the aforementioned Braveheart or Outlaw King or uh, Timothy Chalamet's The King. There's less focus on war and battle and violence and that warrior hero legend side of this character and more on his human side and there's more emphasis on what this what scottish independence is causing ordinary citizens and not just focusing on the soldiers and the nobles and the war heroes who were involved so i didn't think that overall i thought that it was not quite you know incredible but i appreciated what it was trying to do and i thought it was ambitious. Robert the Bruce, uh, the action uh, historical film Wade. Yeah, I'm, I'm less enthused. I, I am a fan of Braveheart, and uh, I, I'm not sure why Angus McFadden would want to return to the character 25 years later. He has a perfectly good career. There's no reason to sort of revisit this in this in like a semi-sequel. The the problem for me is that I do have those those epic expectations, especially given the stature of Robert the Bruce in Scottish history. There's no there are no uh, crowd scenes here. There are no big battle scenes. There are, at most there are maybe six or seven mercenaries looking for him when he holes up with this widow and her children and then it kind of turns into Jeremiah Johnson starring Robert the Bruce and it's it's a it's a very peculiar low budget way of trying to give us an entree into a really enormously important historical figure i i i think this would have been fine to tell this as part of a larger story but it doesn't it doesn't have the scope to to really do him justice robert the bruce is unrated it's available on multiple video on demand platforms one br uh, horror film uh which br I assume stands for bedroom as a listing it's to uh, start Nicole Bryden Bloom. David Marmer is the writer director. Wade, what did you think of one? Is it bedroom? Is that how it's said? Yes, it, it, as in an ad for a bedroom. In real life, if you find a wonderful apartment complex where everyone is just delightfully nice, take that apartment. <laughs> the movies run as. 
fast as you can the other direction. This is basically like a cross between Polanski's The Tenant and Midsommar, except set in a uh, in a Hollywood apartment complex. Young woman who's just come to Los Angeles trying to restart her life lands her favorite apartment, and all her neighbors are so so nice and welcoming and warm until they're not. And uh, I think it's a great resume piece uh, for uh, David Marmer, who this is his feature writing and directing debut. It's a great Polanski-like thriller. It's a very tight script. It does take some predictable turns, but he handles them with so much aplomb. Uh, I think this will be a great door for him to go through to to do a lot of other bigger and better films. Angie, what did you think of One Bedroom? I liked it. It's interesting throughout. I was never bored or wondering, oh, when's it going to be over? And I think it's pretty short, too. So it's it's nice and brisk. Um, and I but I kept feeling like I wish it was just a little bit better than it was. I wish I'd had a slightly stronger sense of visual style. I wish the characters had been a little bit deeper. I wish the acting had been a little bit better. But it's it's kind of odd because these are minor quibbles. The movie as a whole, I think, works fine. It just feels like there was potential for it to be a little bit better than there was. That said, it's an interesting idea. The execution is, you know, competent, if not spectacular. And it has a plausible understanding of how, well, actually, I was going to say something, but I don't know if it's a spoiler, so maybe I'm going to stop. All right. One Um, bedroom. Oh, oh, go ahead. Do you have another point? Oh, no. I was just... I was just going to say that it made me really glad that I live in an apartment complex where I know none of my neighbors. One Bedroom is uh, unrated. It's available on video and demand, as well as on disc. It stars Nicole Bryden Bloom. The True History of the Kelly Gang uh, is about the Australian gang leader Ned Kelly. Uh, the drama stars George McKay, Russell Crowe, and uh, Crow, excuse me, and Nicholas Holt. Justin Kurzel is the director. Uh, what do you think, uh, Christy, of the true story of the Kelly Gang? I like this a lot, and this is yet another telling of the story of legendary Australian outlaw Ned Kelly. Um, Mick Jagger played him in 1970. Heath Ledger played him in 2003. Now we have George McKay, the the star of 1917, playing him. And I'm very much getting a Heath Ledger vibe from him here. There is like a a brashness and uh, an unpredictability about him, a volatility that's really exciting. Um, And it's just about who this guy was and how he became the bad guy he became. And it begins with him as a child living, you know, in the 1870s in middle of nowhere, Australia. And it's just an absolute wild land. Um, the kid who plays Ned Kelly as a little boy who has like a 12 year old boy is so great. His name is Orlando Schwert. And it's about how you know his dad dies. He becomes a man of the house. His mom uh, is played by Essie Davis, who is the director's wife. And she's incredibly harsh. Like everybody is out to get you. Everybody wants something from you. And that understanding of the world is what drives him to become this robber. And he creates this band of merry men around him. And uh, you see all the different people who who shape him. Russell Crowe in an incredibly showy role. He shows up and he's he's just charismatic and so inappropriate (laughs) and so funny. And I love this director's films. He also did a version of Macbeth a few years back starring Michael Fassbender. And 
that as well as this film, there's like a texture and like a muck that are so tangible. They really put you in the middle of this film. Right. It's like you can you can taste it, you can smell it. The costume design is great. I really liked it. Angie, what do you think? The true history of the Kelly Gang. I agree. It's exciting to see a historical drama that is trying to do something a little bit different and that's taking really big swings. Like it has really bold performances, unconventional costuming, and it's taking a de-glamorized view of its protagonist. And scene to scene, I found it really riveting. But that said, at the end of it, it felt like it added up to less than the sum of its parts. I don't think I walked away with any that much greater of an understanding of who he was behind beyond an angry young man or what he meant as a historical figure. Wade, do you have a quick comment on the true history of the Kelly gang? Uh, yeah, I, I largely agree with uh, Angie. I, it, it's very historically accurate. Lots of dead trees, lots of aerial shots of dead trees to, to emphasize the, the symbolism. But, you know, this we've been told this story since the first feature film of all time in, two, in uh, 1906. That was the first feature film. It was a Ned Kelly film. Wow. Uh, we, we, we've been told this story so much, I just don't know how much more they can squeeze out. The True History of the Kelly Gang is rated R, available on multiple video on-demand platforms. You're listening to Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. We're going to tell you more about a Netflix streaming documentary that's released this weekend. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us. Earlier this hour, we heard our three Film Week critics talk about how much they enjoyed the documentary Circus of Books, which is streaming now on Netflix. It tells the story of two bookstores, one in West Hollywood, the other in Silver Lake, operated by Karen and Barry Mason, uh, who sort of became accidental booksellers, but uh, became real pillars of the LGBTQ communities of Silver Lake and West Hollywood. And in there is a drama that includes federal investigation into films that were produced and distributed through their stores and a family story that's at the center of it. In fact, the daughter of the Masons, Rachel Mason, is the filmmaker responsible for Circus of Books. Let's listen to uh, this excerpt from the film in which Karen, uh, with her sons, Micah and Joshua, talk about how much the Mason kids knew about what their parents did for a living. We never talked about it. It was just known that that's how the family worked. You don't talk about family business in the family. If anyone asked us what our parents did, the official answer was run a bookstore. We own a bookstore. That's that's what you tell people. There were times we had to get to the store because mom was driving us home and needed to stop by. And we were under strict instructions to stare down at the ground the entire time we were passing through certain areas of the store. Don't look around, look at the floor. Um, but obviously, you know, wandering eyes. And what was on those shelves were hardcore gay films, videos, uh, sex toys, and the like. Uh, Rachel, thanks so much for being with us to talk about your film and your families. Good to have you on Film Week. It's nice to be here. Thank you very much, Larry. Uh, so, Rachel, let's let's talk about that lack of knowledge. I love the scene in the film where you describe how you found out the type of bookstore that your parents operated. Did, did um, each of your siblings find out in, in his own way? <laughs> 
Well, you know, I think at first when I was a kid, I just assumed every store had an over 18 section. And, um, you know, we were actually raised rather strictly. You know, we were um, not allowed to eat very much candy because it would rot your teeth out. So when we would walk into the store, the first thing we would ever notice as kids was the candy selection. And, you know, I think it, it gives you some sense of what a kid's perspective is. Um, but as I got older and I joined f full force with the LGBT community in my school and I was part of, um, I would say, the outsiders gang of kids who um, were obsessed with anything that was countercultural, my friends were the ones that were going to that store and revealed to me just how exciting and fun that store was. And I thought it was very strange because my parents were not exciting and fun and interesting people. And, you know, I'm from Hollywood, so I went to school with people that had much more cool parents than mine and you know were artists and actors and producers and my parents were I thought very boring small business owners. <laughs> little did you know <laughs> right. I, w I went to Hollywood High so I had a similar ex experience what high school did you go to well I actually went to school in Reseda at Cleveland High School in the Valley but it was an hour-long uh, ride for me and I would have gone to Hollywood but I think in the 90s at that time Hollywood was uh experiencing some sort of a, um, a drop. I don't remember what the reasons were, but my mom, you know, very hardcore about academics had discovered that Cleveland was a really good high school. And I, you know, took an hour and a half long bus ride every day to get there from uh, West Hollywood. And it was a great school. But um, but yeah, as you know, living in Hollywood, there's lots of interesting people with interesting parents. And those were not my parents. My parents <laughs> were really boring. <laughs> well, let's talk about their backgrounds. Your your mother had been a newspaper reporter in uh, Ohio. Your dad uh, had worked in effects in the movies before uh, inventing a device used in kidney dialysis. How did they make the transition uh, to start distributing sexually explicit material? Well, you know, I think the operative word is uh, decision. It wasn't exactly a decision. It was more like they were hoping that my dad's dialysis machines would take off. And of course, he was up against the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world that, you know, very easily wipe out the little guy. But, you know, in the 70s, it was a different environment. And, you know, you could sort of be a maverick and start, you know, and see what would happen. And so I think they were both really hoping that my dad would have a very amazing career in dialysis. And of course, it was so difficult that they took up a little sideline gig, which was delivering Hustler. And I didn't realize until I actually interviewed Larry Flint, who told me personally that they were his first distributors here in LA, that, you know, they, they you know, get got this ad in the LA Times and responded to it and were just really um, great small-time local distributors of Hustler. And then Larry Flint, of course, started what's sort of an unknown chapter in LGBT history is that he was an early champion because he simply, just like my parents, um, said, okay, I can take up these other magazines that happen to be gay, which at that time was pretty radical because there were so few gay publications. And those were early magazines like Blue Boy, Honcho, Mandate. And um, those magazines on my parents' delivery route uh, were very popular at this one store called Book Circus. And, and we'll, we'll, just a second, because I, I want to play the clip from the film uh, about um, how this sort of uh, distribution part of the business began uh, with your dad driving these publications all around Los Angeles. Uh, Barry and Karen explain how, uh, along with Larry Flint in this clip, how they realized that these magazines could be real moneymakers. 
Meanwhile, Flint took over other magazine companies. So now we had uh, several gay titles, a one. few more. We had Blue Boy. Blue Boy was one of the first really successful gay publications that was not underground. They had trouble finding a distributor, and they came to me. And then he got other ones, Honcho and Mandate, which were all the top gay magazines at the time. We had even thousands of titles, knitting magazines, woodworking, guns, you name it. They New got, York Review of yeah, Books. Yeah, fine, good magazines. We would try and get the better magazines. And they what sold do you it mean to better? us. better? The better? Like, like New York Times Review no, of Books. No, New York Review of Books never sold very well. What sold oh. well was Hustler. I love that clip because the dynamics of your, your mom and dad in that. <laughs> I know she's such a hardcore businesswoman. It's, you know, it does, uh, ironically, she's also very academic and loves lots of books. But, you know, when it comes to business, Hustler really did sell the best of everything. And, and so you mentioned Book Circus is this mm-hmm. store in West Hollywood that your your father is is distributing the magazines to. How did he go from uh, selling them uh, these explicit magazines uh, into taking over the store? Well, you know, it's, again, a very funny twist that I think makes you remember, I think, L.A. in the 70s as a <laughs> much different time. Um, I don't know why, but the, the, I feel like this film sort of encapsulates a, a different environment in which things happened, a more fly-by-night kind of fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants sort of environment. And, and there was a store that just they were delivering to and um lo and behold it couldn't pay its bills and um a series of different things happening with some people getting very deeply involved in drugs and my parents sort of accidentally realizing that you know if they could pay the rent they could take over the store and they just went right up to the landlord and and said as much and and she said okay and so they did and little did they know they were getting involved in a store that had uh, the attention of a lot of people in the adult industry, including mafia people. And so my dad makes a funny joke that uh, everything was fine, except that some people threatened to kill him. And, you know, there was some early um, drama around their overtaking of the store. But, you know, they really just did it because um, it was kind of a smart very quick seeming uh, decision, you know, like we may as well, they owe us some money and we could pay the rent and the store looks like it's doing well. So, you know, they were just, um, it was sort of like a quick business decision. And I think it was pretty brilliant if you were open-minded enough at the time to be in this industry, which I think says a lot because really that at that time it was still completely outlawed to be gay it was not you know at all what it is today and i think you know especially adult material was also completely against the law in many parts of the country and was still very much the subject of a lot of uh, jurisdictions. So. And, and you get into that in the film um, with my friend John Weston, who's been a longtime KPCC supporter, First Amendment attorney, who's prominently featured as the attorney uh, for uh, the family here as they go through some real challenges that we'll get to momentarily. You're listening to Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. We're talking about the documentary Circus of Books. We'll We'll be back in just one minute. Listening to Film Week on 89.3 KPECC. I'm Larry Mantle. We're talking about 
a new film streaming on Netflix, the documentary Circus of Books, same title as the store in West Hollywood and Silver Lake that sold adult-oriented videos, books, other materials, and was really a center of gay life in both of those communities. But unknown to Rachel, her parents, the bookstore that they operated was a bookstore that focused on uh, gay material. And once she learned about that, it had certainly a significant effect on the family dynamics. All of that explored in her documentary. Uh, Let's, though, listen uh, to this selection from the film, which tells about the importance of a circus of books. It features L.A. LGBTQ activist Alexei Romanov, uh, one of the last people alive who was at the famous Black Cat demonstration in Silver Lake when police came in on a New Year's Eve uh, to rouse uh, the patrons of that establishment. Uh, in this clip, uh, Romanov talks about why the bookstore was so important. From that incident came demonstrations against police brutality outside of the oldest gay bars in Los Angeles, the Black Cat and the New Faces. It was the largest demonstration in the country at the time, and it was two and a half years before Stonewall. The New Faces became the Circus of Books. That bookstore was really important because there was literature in them that had to do with our lives. I mean, we were the unspoken hidden people that you never talked about because they were disgusting. You hear about the importance, the central role of Circus of Books for gay men to to meet. Uh, It was the social environment, not just what was sold there. Uh, But Rachel, your parents went through the worst of the AIDS pandemic, when they lost employees, customers, when the communities that they were in suffered devastating effects from the AIDS pandemic. And that, I mean, that's particularly poignant. When you were a kid and and going through this, did you have a sense of the devastation? You know, I think, again, this is why I felt so, so such a need to make this film, because I realized only years later as an adult um, that I knew people who would tell me about losing all their friends. And then I remember thinking, wow, when I was a kid, I remember all the clerks that I thought were so wonderful and all these different people that would come and go. And then I would just ask my parents about them and they might say something like, oh yeah, well, John just died last week. Oh, and, and this guy he was great. Bill, well, you know, or this person here, um, Mike, well, he just died and, and that guy died and, and this guy died. And and I had a child's perspective on a kind of constant amount of death for a window of time. And these were just such fantastic, wonderful men. I just loved them. And I just thought they were really cool. You know, I, at an early age, I think I might've had an affinity for the fantastic, beautiful gay flair that is, has come to become my entire life. I'm very surrounded by, you know, the LGBT community, but particularly gay men. And so I realized later I, I, I had witnessed a really alarming amount of death without sort of knowing it and knowing that I was in the center of an epidemic by proxy to the store 
and you know, I wouldn't say we were witnessing the people going, you know, to the the hospices and being put in body bags, but my parents certainly were, and I was aware enough of the the loss mm-hmm. that when I got older, I just had a thought process about it that really led me to feel a, a kind of memorial for this entire era that I I do feel we have not fully grasped the entirety of even now. <laughs> Your your parents uh, speak with great affection about the people close to them, employees and others who uh, were lost to AIDS. And yet at the same time, when your brother, one of your brothers, came out to them while in college and home on break, um, your father very accepting of that. But your mother, because of her conservative Judaism had a real difficult time with this. And and um, how was this for her recounting this? I mean, she's she's made a journey to great acceptance and, in fact, um, is very involved in, in gay rights now. But in that, in having to go back and talk about it, was that tough for her? Well, it was and it wasn't because my mom has become this kind of— um, almost like a poster child. She says it in the movies. I'm a poster child for a parent that had a really bad reaction and I wish I could take it all back. And I love that she admits to that because she had the worst possible reaction because my mom is very devout and very biblical in her thinking and always was. And, you know, she really was a person that I think had a kind of fundamentalist biblical view. We, we were uh, raised in the more conservative, bordering, orthodox Jewish version, which is conservative culturally. And as ironic as it is that these people would have a gay porn store that couldn't have been less culturally conservative, my mom was was completely the other way. You know, and I remember she just wanted all of us to grow up and marry Jewish and have kids and, you know, that were Jewish. And that was just very central to her values. And so, you know, I think there's other branches of the Jewish movement, reform in particular, that are much more liberal. And we were not in that environment. We were in a conservative environment. And I think that that's actually the strange irony of the film, but which gives it something that is very relatable. When I took this film on the film festival circuit, I had countless people telling me, and I still get messages from people, Catholic, Christian, Baptist, Muslim, that say, you know, your mother, it was exactly like my mother. And, and I wish she could have come around. And, and I think that that's why it's important to see that my mom did come around, because there's still so many people who have these very harsh religious judgments that come from a particular interpretation of the Bible. And, you know, as strange as it may be, you could be so fully embedded in the gay community and still be homophobic. That was what I was trying to uh, reveal in the film. And it wasn't, as my mom likes to say, it wasn't my finest moment, but it also, I think she understands the value in sharing that story in order to heal other people and specifically other parents so that they can come around and appreciate just their wonderful gay kids or their just wonderful kids who might happen to be LGBT or anything else. We have just about a minute left, but I wanted to briefly ask you about um, the um, prosecution of your parents over the material that they were distributing. Uh, an employee of the store uh, sent some videos uh, to Pennsylvania. Federal prosecution ensued. Did you have a sense before doing the film how close your father came to going to prison? You know, I actually, since you brought up John Weston, that you know him, I mean, really, my parents were represented by pretty much the best attorney 
that could have handled their case. And he looked me in the eye and told me that he wasn't even sure that they wouldn't be going to jail. Yeah, it's a remarkable story, and there's so much more in the film, Circus of Books, uh, which, of course, the name of the store, uh, the store is no longer with us under the management of uh, Rachel's parents, uh, Karen and Barry Mason. Uh, Rachel, a great uh, film. Thank you so much for joining us and talking about your family and the store that your parents had for decades. We appreciate it. Thank you, Larry. This was so much fun. I enjoyed it. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPCC Circus of Books, by the way, streaming now on Netflix. From all of us, have a terrific weekend, and we remind you, in case you missed any of the program, it's always available for podcasts wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thanks so much.